Now, this is what Max is saying. We're losing time here, and, and now they're in for the undercut situation, aren't they? Ferrari puts on new tyres, and Red Bull, this is where Max seems to be pumping in his best stuff. It's all well that ends well for Max Verstappen, who's sliding his way out of the final corner and taking the line, winning the Belgium Grand Prix for a second year in a row. It's a ninth victory in Formula One in 2022 for the reigning world champion. Hello and welcome to the Undercut Podcast. We're back once again and this time it is time to review the Belgian Grand Prix. I'm Jesse Bennington hosting tonight's podcast. I say tonight, it's Monday evening, we're recording after the Grand Prix. But as usual, I'm joined by my two excellent co-hosts. Uh, below me on the Zoom call, I have Timo Alvis-Daily. How are you? I'm quite content, thank you, Jesse. How about yourself? Yeah, not too bad. A little bit sunburned from a weekend at the Silverstone Classic and a nice little bike ride to brunch today, but... Uh, doing well and the above me on the, oh the spoils of war indeed four thousand photographs to sort through as well it's an arduous process and above me on the zoom call is ellie may taylor how are you i'm good thank you so anything anything interesting from this weekend to report or no not really just had family around can't go wrong there or sometimes you can depends on the family invite but that's a, that's a topic for a different podcast entirely. <laughs> um, we'll shuffle on fast before anyway says something mean about an aunt or something to what the hell has happened. And uh, we'll start with the big news that's happened really since we last recorded anything sort of... More or less the day after our preview episode. Yeah, pretty much the day after that, yeah. Because we record the preview episodes a little too far in advance because it takes me so long to edit them. But uh, that's a different problem entirely. Uh, Daniel Ricciardo is set to leave McLaren. And we've just simply left in the script for this blank to pair with Norris. And I've put in notes next to it, possibly Piastri depends on contract negotiation court. It's all gotten a bit silly seasonish and very silly indeed. Yeah, it could literally be anyone at this point, And it might not even be Piastri say it depends on the contract negotiation which we were hoping maybe by the time that we recorded this we'd have an answer on that but I guess they weren't too quick about it today in whichever session they decided to to do it um, but it could be Gasly but then Alpine are looking at him apparently now it could be Mick you never know maybe it could be one of the infinite number of McLaren drivers that they have stacked up from all these other categories or it could even be Someone outside of that, maybe Stockholm and Dawn comes back, maybe DeFries comes back because that doesn't look like they'll be in the E next year at this rate. So anyone's guess at this point, and I, even I'm not ballsy enough to call that one. There's too many options. Yeah, I don't know who other than Piastri will really take that McLaren seat because we've always sort of thought if it's going to be someone like DeFries, they'll probably move to Williams. So I really don't know who will take that. I guess was today more about whether Alpine can get compensation for what Piastri has essentially done rather than who he's got the contract with. Because I think now, even if they decide that Piastri should stick with Alpine, I think Alpine are going to be like, well, we don't want you anymore. Well, then it's still not necessarily up to Piastri where he goes at that point, because if they deem that the contract is still valid and that Alpine essentially get to decide what he does, then if they decide, well, 
we won't use you, but we won't give you to McLaren either as punishment, then that still leaves that McLaren seat wide open for the infinite number of people that could possibly take that. Um, all I'll say is McGacken was as far, so you never know. Yeah, I mean, it's it depends how the court settles in favour of who for what and which way they properly go with it. I don't think there can be a point that Alpine cling on to Piastri and don't put him in the seat because I think he does is basically can't his junior contract his reserve role with them sort of expired so they can't hold on to him what it does mean is he becomes a completely free agent if neither team sign him but it also means that he's without a seat so it's completely backfired for him it still leaves Alpine without a seat and it still now leaves McLaren without a seat which throws everything into complete disarray it's then fastest finger first but arguably Alpine and McLaren are still the winners there in a way because they have a massive driver market choice of who they can put in there and they don't have to deal with that particular rookie who, if nothing else, regardless of how quick he's in the car, has proven that before he's even in F1, is trying to rival Alonso and how tricky he wants to be with the team. Yeah, he's sort of got this... He's he's sown the wind and he was going to have to reap a whirlwind with this one because he's got a track record now without actually setting foot on track. And like you said, it's almost sort of an Alonso-like track record of being a bit tricky to manage and a bit tricky to deal with. Potentially some of this comes down with having had his links with Alonso, obviously with Alpine and Alonso being in the academy and potentially Alonso sort of letting certain people know of things happening in advance. And equally, he's got the sort of the mature head of Mark Webber as his sort of representative and his sort of, not his coach or anything, but sort of his, his, his manager. manager. That's the word I was looking for. So there's a lot of interesting and very experienced people from the world of Formula One that are around him at the moment and pulling strings that are potentially leading to situations no one really saw arising. But when it comes to if McLaren doesn't take Piastri on, who is going to fill that seat? And, I mean, hot shoe for it, possibly Gasly? Because obviously he's looking at sort of finishing up at Red Bull and moving somewhere else, and it's long been known that he's not going to go back to the Red Bull mate top team. So where does he go after that? And obviously, he's looking at Alpine at the moment, which is going to be an interesting one. Him and Ocon, both of them fantastic drivers, very fast when they're at a good time. And the Alpine is looking like a quick car at the moment, so if they can continue development, positive signs for Gasly. It's a team that people want to be moving to, unlike a Aston Martin with Alonso, but that's a different story. Either way, though, for Gasly, it's a step up from Alpha Tower in terms of feeding consistency. So regardless of which team gets him if that is indeed what either team wants then it's a win-win for him so it is very much a win-win for him and it opens up a seat at Alpha Tauri which I think Colton Herter is being bandied around for filling that gap weirdly enough no which I've got that. to say if I'm Liam Lawson I'm incredibly pissed off at that considering the weekend I've just had although if you are Liam Lawson I would be on the phone to Yuki Sonoda asking what his plans are for 2023 if they're looking at Colton True. Herter and Liam Lawson because that would be a fairly chaotic mix of two drivers that I've never done F1 before. The other bit I will spoil your party slightly there, though, is that Corvette does not have the points for it, and that would have to be a pretty quick turnaround, even for Red Bull. And even then, it seems that whilst we will probably and definitely will go into this at some point in another podcast, F2-wise, they're a bit thin on the ground for the drivers, so they could stick up into F1 side from Lawson. They've still got a lot of them in F3 as well, and a couple in F2 that aren't too bad either, so it's just a matter of maturing. So if you did even have to get caught in you put him on a one-year contract, then what do you think? Like, and 
that haven't replaced Chaco, it seems a bit unnecessarily quick and just more attention grabbing rather than doing it for the benefit of the team, the drivers. Yeah, I'm not. I think. I'm not sure why they're doing it. I think it could be a case of if they're sort of doing one big showmanship thing with one hand, we might not notice what they're doing with another, and that's quite a Red Bull thing. Maybe to that's do, to deflect us from Porsche and what's going on there. Yeah, look over here. We're signing a very suspect contract where Porsche want a lot of money for a large stake in the team that Red Bull have gone, no, we don't want to do that. And equally, Porsche, and something we'll get onto later, is Audi. Both of them are in the same boat. They've both stopped developing road car engines not that long ago and it's a question of how quickly both will be able to whip up a motorsport engine and bear in mind that Audi and Porsche are both owned by Volkswagen this is either Volkswagen playing both sides of the same coin by investing in different teams on the grid or potentially Volkswagen not understanding fully what they're buying into which I doubt because it's Volkswagen it's one of the biggest names in cars and manufacturing and automotive stuff but at the same time, it seems a very odd deal. But we'll get properly into that later. It just makes you wonder what on earth is going on inside Red Bull and inside the mind of Helmut Marko if he's looking at... We've always wondered that one, to be fair, Jesse. We've wondered it for a long time, but if he's all of a sudden going, I have some good, quick juniors. I have Liam Lawson, who had a fantastic weekend in Spa, which we'll get to when we do our big sort of F2 triple header. It really does make you wonder what's going on there with them also looking at Colton. I know, Elima, you had a point you were about to chime in on and I sort of rudely cut you off. No, that's fine. I think, because mine's kind of a different point, so I kind of let you go on with yours. I think just going back to McLaren, I think to get rid of Danny Rick, they had to be, they have to be pretty certain that they've got Piastri. Otherwise, there's no real reason to... I know he hasn't been doing well these past two years, but there's no reason to be like, right, we're going to get rid of Ricardo, and now we're not going to know who's going to replace him. They've definitely got someone there that is replacing him. Yeah, they've not made this move without making sure they had someone to fill that gap. And I think that's... It's fairly certain that whatever comes out of this contract hearing, McLaren would have been careful enough. I mean, you look at the financial work that Zach Brown has put in. That car is littered with sponsorships and all sorts of different deals and packages. Every weekend there's a different sponsor on the car for a regional location. There were some different ones on it this weekend, whether or not they'll be there for Zandvoort, but potentially there were some that were specifically had websites that ended in .be. Like, he clearly has been doing a lot of marketing work. This is a man that knows how to wrangle his way through motorsport. He won't have left a major stone unturned in this Piastri contract. So whether or not they find completely in favour of McLaren or partially in favour of McLaren that this contract stands... McLaren have definitely sort of covered their backs with this one and if not they do still have Stoffel van Dorn as a reserve driver I believe so if push comes and to he's a world champion can... now and he's looking yeah, for someone to go is... so even if it's a one year contract you've got to think if you're Stoffel it's this or IndyCar let's face it because okay yeah there's probably a seat or two in Formula E you can go to but you have nothing left to prove there whereas this one's like well, let's see what I can do up against Lando uh, who's still not won a race because it, it would be uh, quite juicy, I think, and good for everyone aside from McLaren Orlando if whoever partners him next year comes in and wins a race before Lando does yeah. and just proves, yeah, you might have dropped the ball with Ricardo a bit, but he still won a race for you when Lando hasn't, and he's had, you could have arguably won three in a row last year 
um, and just drop the ball. So just a little reminder there that you might be great at marketing, but when it comes to the car and the drivers, you've still got a little ways to go, and that's maybe why you've only won one race in 2013. Yeah, I mean, Stoff, when he looks at Formula E, it's Formula E completed it, mate. Where does he go next? And I think mm. back to F1 wouldn't be a surprising move for Stoffel Van Dorn. When he was in F1, he was quick. He was sort of keeping pace. Considering the car he had. Yeah, that was like he was able, able to extract it. as much from a really terrible car as two-time world champion Fernando Alonso was able to extract from it. They might not have been getting a lot from it, but both were getting the same amount from a very bad mm. car. He's by no means a slow driver, so I don't think if push comes to shove, if things turn out bad for Piastri, McLaren won't be in a sticky situation. They have a good driver, and a driver that has completed a world championship knows how to mount a proper charge weekend after weekend after weekend in single-seaters. Slightly different application, but the point still stands. He's a good driver, and he knows how to how to drive a championship. If he ends up going to IndyCar, again, he could be Big an interesting one to watch there. Yeah. But, yeah, I think it's fairly certain it's going to be Piastri in that McLaren seat. Who goes to the Alpine seat is still up for debate. I mean, we keep banding around Pierre Gasly's name. He's a hot shoe-in for it. Mick Schumacher at one point was a shoe-in for it as well. Ocon As... says he would prefer Mick, which you've got to say, if you've got to race either Daniel Ricciardo, Pierre Gasly or Mick Schumacher going up the last two years towards, you'd say Mick Schumacher, because even if you get along with him off track, like, yeah, I'll go for the one in the hands. I think I can yeah, beat him. You'll go for the one that you know you can beat and look a bit good against, and as nice as SDS. I can is, say I've beaten a Schumacher, and we'll just ignore the fact that it's M. Schumacher, and we'll leave it off that it's Junior. Yeah. I think it depends as well how much Alpine care about a good driver relationship, because obviously Gasly and Ocon go way back, and they don't get along, and they haven't since early, sort of, I think, teenage years. So they're not going to suddenly rekindle a very close friendship especially as whilst Esteban's the loveliest guy off track there seems to be a lot of difficulties with him when he's on track which I don't think I, I'm not trying to say Esteban's a difficult driver he's driving for himself at that point which is fair enough for his race positions there's no reason that the sort of arguments he's been with have having with Alonso that they were sort of, he should have just let Alonso pass. He had a full right to be fighting along with him. So... The only other thing I'll yeah, say on I... that one is that teenage tiff or whatever, you're both adults now. You've got a job to do, get along. If they decide that Gatley is the best fit for the team, then as much as you're definitely their long-term driver, Esteban, grow up and just deal with it. You know, this is your job. If you can get along with whoever you want off track but you know you still fight them hard on track and that's fair enough but he's proven with Alonso he's not afraid to keep it clean but very close at times I mean look at Saudi this year for a perfect example of that and Perez back in Spa when it was still Horse India um, but just you know it's it's personal and professional and you just got to do play the team game there so if that's why it is and if it is Gasly because it would look great to have an old French team for on drivers and the car front, then that's what they got to do. I can definitely see them going down the Gasly line, and I think, yeah, you make the point of them, they're adults now, it might have been a teenage tiff, I think they've, maybe they've come to see eye to eye, they've agreed to disagree on stuff and realise they can go into this like adults, and you don't see sort of reports of them bickering about it now, it's always been historic stuff that gets churned up on the internet, It's they're not going at each other these days per, on a sort of social way, perhaps they're not the closest of friends, they're not the closest of people on the grids, 
But again, they don't need to be. They don't need to be. Yeah. And equally, in a team that inspires rivalry and competition and drives each driver to do better than the other. And I think as a team, you want drivers that have an element of motivation to them. And as good as we saw that with Carlos and Lando, not every team is going to work with having two absolute best buds on a team. And potentially the way that Alpine is... And even if you are best buds, like Lewis and Rosberg, that can still go to itself yeah. anyway. So you might as well just do what is arguably the, the strongest lineup for the team and deal with any issues that arise when they and do. I think especially with the way that Formula 1 works these days, you look at how close and how much friction that Charles Leclerc and Sebastian Vettel had through the latter part of their career. You look at the coming together in Belgium, or the, not Belgium, Brazil, got my bros wrong. Um, and equally when they had that crash in Austria in 2020, there was a lot of animosity between the two of them and potentially between the two of them against the team as well. It was a three-way thing. But at the same time, both drivers respected each other. And I think the sport is mature enough and I think the drivers on the grid are mature enough to be able to deal with that. And if Alpine pick up... No, it clearly isn't. We've seen sort of maturity be an issue at times in Formula 2, obviously for reasons that we've well mentioned previously. And mature drivers are coming into Formula 1 and I think teams appreciate that yeah, you might not get on, but we're giving you a chance to drive in some absolutely top tier machinery. You look at the points gap Alpine have got over McLaren now, and you think that McLaren are already having to start building a car for next year that's completely different. Alpine have got a car they can develop and enhance. If Alpine comes knocking with a, a seat for next year, you'd be silly to say no, if anything, which is one of the things I'm questioning with Piastri is potentially why he threw that away so early on. And Two two final things on that one, because we're never going to get through this podcast otherwise. Um, but with Piastri, maybe the only logical thing I can think of there, and then it's a little stretches, and Clarence has more prestige than Alpine. You know, if it was still running, maybe it would be more attractive to him on that front, but the fact he can say, oh yeah, I'm not a Clarence driver, it's my first season got that thing that Lando has and you can rival him on that front um, and start playing into team mind games there maybe. Pure speculation but you know Oscar's showing that he's maybe being a little tricky at the moment so maybe that's exactly what he'd be up to. Who knows? Um, and then second of all whoever does fill the doubt in the seat I can see them now also regardless of the Astri wanting whoever it is to only sign a one year contract because Jack Dillon's very strong in F2 at the moment and you'd be an idiot to think that he's not a title contender for next year because very much he's a rookie in F2 this year and he's already possibly going to finish in third if he continues as he has been and you've got to think that would be an exciting prospect for 2024 and even then if, he, if he's going to come into a final thing and then if you're within Williams or Haas you're thinking why are you giving me a one year contract or well, maybe you're having talks about being as well about doing so it's tricky and do you take that one-year contract and hope that you can have that year then to buy yourself another year at least and absolutely get the maximum out of that car? And again, if you've got the Dalpine, which you know is being developed more, do you have any excuse for doing badly with it? I think that's the thing. It's a case of do you look at contract length, which could have been one of the things that put Piastri off signing with Alpine, was the case of he knew what Dillon was doing underneath him and thought, I'm only going to get a year contract with Alpine until they sign Mick Doohan for... Uh, Interesting if you're Piastri to feel threatened by Doohan, though, when you've got Piastri's track record, if that is the case. Yeah, I mean, bear in mind, Piastri flew through, flew through the feeder series, got too many consonants in a row. Um, and again, it's 
potentially he's seen something in Dewan or come across him at some point and knows exactly how much of a rivalry he presents. But again, it also the other thing is we're going to keep talking seats for a second, and this is probably a bit boring for some people who want to hear about Belgium. It opens up this Haas seat as well because Mick Schumacher has been previously touted to be making that move to Alpine to fill the gap, and then. Giovinazzi has been touted to fill the Haas seat because there's not no other Ferrari drivers coming forwards aside and it really does sort of open things. You don't need a Ferrari driver, you could have Schwarzman as he's doing the Ferrari stuff because he's Sundred like now. Alternatively, if you do want something a bit left field, Porsche, yeah. you could. Yeah, Porsche, I think he's going to stay for another year, but and even then, be Alfa Romeo, depending on how Joe does. But you've got this this less of a close relationship between Ferrari and Haas now, so they're a bit more open to it, and Drogovic could be exactly what Drogovic could be, but obviously they've got Giovinazzi coming in for these sort of testing seats. It's hinting at stuff, and obviously the guy's done his year on the sidelines, he's done his Formula E, he was a quick driver, and I was looking back through, weirdly enough, his 2021 season. Someone sent me, my girlfriend sent me a TikTok that sort of went through it. And as much as a sort of conspiracy theory, it looks, when you break apart, you've probably seen the same TikTok, Ellie, yeah. you're nodding in agreement. There are some bits of it that just don't make sense. Like, why did Alfa Romeo do this? And you look at the points balance that fell in favour of, Jovan- of um, Kimi Raikkonen at the end of the season, you're thinking, did they ho- why did they hobble Giovinazzi for what it seems like they did? They pulled him in for pit stops so they simply would... Easy, easy answer there, Jesse. They had the same strategy as Ferrari did this year and they got promoted from doing such a great job. Possibly they did, but they pulled him into the pit stops, touched his tyres and then sent him out. So they didn't change tyres, they just simply went, prod, off you go. And you're thinking, something about a lot of it. They were wondering why they were called soft tyres, so they wanted to check. I don't know, something about it doesn't add up and it makes you think that we would have seen more of Giovinazzi, a man who absolutely dominated coming through F3 and F2. He was up there with Pierre Gasly coming through what was still GP2 at the time. And it came down to a few points between them at the GP2 finale in, I think it was 2015, 16, I can't remember the year exactly. And bear in mind how quick we've seen Pierre Gasly be when he's got a good chassis under him. And these two are two essentially equivalent drivers when it comes to talent. If Giovinazzi comes back into the Haas, because obviously he has driven for Haas before, and it's now a relatively competitive seat. I'm not going to say it's the most competitive seat in the midfield, but when that Haas has its moments, we've seen obviously Kevin and Mick pull some brilliant performances out of it. You put a good driver in that seat, and again, we're going to see something interesting that... We'll stop talking all, about... All, all, all I will say, just that final point, is that you describe him as a good driver and not a great driver, which is what we need to perform next day. I'm saying if you put a good driver into that house, they'll get performances. For me, Joe... Well, if you put a great driver in there, what do you get instead, though? Uh, the disembodied spirit of Ronnie Peterson, I don't know. <laughs> Uh, but anyway, we'll move on from talking driver seats. We'll move on to some other news before we actually properly crack on with Belgium. Um, Audi is look is set to join Formula One in twenty twenty six as a new engine supplier. We've already touched on this, and I've already thrown my thoughts into it. On the case of they've stopped developing road car engines and indeed other motorsport engines, they've started shying away from combustion engines and petrol combustion engines hugely. So it's strange they're coming in as an engine provider. I could understand if they're coming in as a team, as a chassis, and they're buying Red Bull powertrains. But they're going at this arse about tit, and they're coming in and building their own engines, which is odd. And yeah, the whole thing is a bit, it's a bit beyond me, really, especially as they seem to think they're going to come in and be horrendously competitive. 
doesn't interest me whatsoever because you're coming in as an engine like you say you've got no proof that you can be competitive straight out of the box you've got a few years on your side sure but it doesn't you're still coming in with what the space is probably up for mayor or williams and you'll just maybe hobble them slightly which at this point isn't going to do a lot for them because they're already pretty hobbled and maybe you can pull something out of the bag but it would have been a lot more interesting if they'd actually just come in as a proper team and done it properly, like Andretti will hopefully still do. But in the meantime, I kind of saw that, but, oh, oh, never mind. I, yeah, I agree that I am completely confused by the whole situation because I think, I just think it's a weird how they've sort of PR'd it because why was there an unveiling of a whole car? when they're just an engine supplier. They're an engine supplier, but we don't know for what team. And it's like, okay, I guess the most recent one is Honda and they've obviously dipped in and out. But we didn't have this big unveiling that Honda was gonna be suddenly in Formula One again. And it's like, I don't know, I'm just confused by the whole situation. It's, it, and, if you look on, I've only looked really on Instagram at it, and the Instagram on of Formula One don't really even say that it's a PU that they're coming in as an engine supplier. It's just Audi joins Formula One. So it's like, so what are you? It strikes me very much like the Zach Brown that you were saying earlier, Jesse. Great at marketing. Not sure what we're actually doing in terms of the car and the drivers and the actual Formula One bit of Formula One. Yeah, there's a lot left up in the air with this Audi thing. You know, as much as it's sort of a really big headline, you sort of click That's on all it is. Go, yeah, it's just a headline. Audi enters Formula we One. We forgot to put some copy into this article, chaps. We we appear to have jumped <laughs> the guns lately. Yeah, everyone goes. We're in Formula One. What are you doing in Formula One? Good question. That is a very good question. Yeah. Um, but obviously they're touted to be going over to Alfa Romeo or what was essentially actually Sauber because Alfa Romeo and Sauber are set to part ways in 2023, which still leaves a three-year gap before Audi arrives, which means that we'll just have Sauber on the grid. Honda? Sauber. Honda Sauber? I don't know. Or something Toyota. else. Sauber? BMW. There BMW My Sauber. prediction can come true bring, for three years. Bring back, bring, bring back the blue and white livery, please, if you do. But yeah, it's... Um, Three-year gap of just Sauber, potentially, or someone else, or, I don't know, unclear. And Dretti sneaking this way. Ooh, spicy. Not as spicy, mind you, as what we... We'll touch on F2 a little bit again, because it's big news. We've seen uh, Tatiana Calderon return to Formula 2 with Cherus Racing, partnering uh, Enzo Fittipaldi, Baby Shark. And I think we're finally starting to see some good stuff when it comes to women in motorsport, coming into the sort of the top tiers of motorsport. She's back. I mean, she didn't have a brilliant run of it first time round, but she had a fairly decent weekend getting back in the car. She made up places. She, she started the back and she made up places in both races, which for someone who's not been in it since 2019 and has been in IndyCar on and off this year, which is a very different car, you can't say it's too bad. And other people who you could easily name, and I'm going to be nice and not name for a change, um, have done a lot worse job coming straight into it and arguably drivers that have been there longer, who I will name this army, still can't seem to get much out of the car after that much experience. So the fact that she's making up places yeah. straight away, happy days. And you know, Sandboard straight up triple header, so if she can 
apply what she's done immediately for three tracks. Monza, which he's been to in multiple different categories at this point. So I think that one's going to be the most interesting one to watch as well. And hopefully then that means that she can come back forever. And despite what we're seeing with Enzo Fittipaldi, the Chiroux isn't a brilliantly competitive car at the best of times. It's a relatively midfield car, so I don't think you can go into this with high expectations. You've got to be ready. But he's got podiums out of that car. So yeah, he's Enzo Fittipaldi, again, he's been with the team for a while, and again, the car will have been sort of tuned and developed a bit with him in mind, and equally, he knows exactly how to get the best from the tuning setups. But seeing Tatiana Calderon get in the car and get results, not necessarily points or podiums, but get the car up the grid from where she's qualifying is promising stuff, and it's going to be exciting to see how she sort of wraps it up. She's got another three races left, like we said, Zanavor, Monza, and Abu Dhabi. And again, it'll be fun to see her out in Abu Dhabi and see what the crowd there thinks to women racing or at least women driving so spicy stuff indeed uh, moving on to more Belgium related stuff finally um, new Spa track changes you simply put in the notes yay or nay yay I mean I know that some people are a bit eh about it but at the same time it was done for a very valid reason and it still looks great you know, if, if anything, I'm quite glad, especially turn one, the gravel track, because I wasn't aware of all of it, or I was aware of it, I just got all of it. Uh, but nice that they added in these little bits, and all around track, it wasn't just a route. Um, and just means the drivers can't be as uh, liberal with their driving styles as they used to be. And there are proper consequences if you, you bugger it up into turn one, for example. And also that grandstand. I know that nice house has to be demolished for it, but that is a heck of a grandstand. I love it. I bet the seats for their next year are going to be a bit more expensive. Yeah, I wouldn't be surprised. But the the reconstruction of it and the re-sort of tailoring of things looks good. And again, like you said, it's tidied up the racing and the lines through turn one. Because otherwise you get to turn one, if you're coming through the midfield, you just swing it wide and then come back through down mm. this far side of... Which we've seen many times. <laughs> we've seen all the time. But this is sort of tidied up. It keeps the racing tight and compressed. And again, we didn't see any contract or issues in Formula 1 until much further down the circuit. So... It's proven that it's not hampered the racing and it's provided a safer, better circuit and something we've seen have a positive impact because Spa is confirmed for next year. So it's it's all good in the long run, at least. Which I don't way. trust, to be honest, because the only reason I feel like it got put up there is because Kyle Army still needs another $15 million of work to it, which it's good that it's on there for another year at least, but why not give it a 10-year contract and shut everyone up because, let's face it, there's an attractive issue. Should get rid of, especially if you're getting rid of France anyway. There you go. You've made it. Yeah, I can't can't deny that that it's uh, only got a seat next year because Kyle Larmy. This is why we need Stoffel in the McLaren. We need a Belgian driver on the grid. Belgian driver to justify having it back. And then he wins the Belgian Grand Prix next year. There is my early door prediction. Jackie X is too old to get back in the car and race as a Belgian driver, so they've had to go for Stoffel. I'll get a two seater. Just sort of driver notes coming through his ears, uh, but yeah, I think uh, when you look at Carl Army, they've gone, Oh Christ, we need a few more, a few more rounds to try and finish this one, boys. It's not come out right, and um, they've had to quickly sort of say, Maybe we'll go for 2024 instead. And I think that's why we've seen Spa get a, a one year contract extension. But it hasn't really changed the heart of Spa, really, the sort of changes, and it's more for safety. And also, if you're, if you're Spa, you're thinking, hang on, F1 is sort of on the fence with, are we going to keep you, are we going to not? Then they may as well make those safety changes for the motorbikes that they have, 
so that they can keep running Spa. They can't just keep it all for Formula One if Formula One aren't going to give them a definitive answer of whether it's going to stay. And so as the World Endurance Championship was there either earlier this year or last year, well, with Jack Aitken had a big crash as well, which they need which again, be exactly the same point on the track. So they have multiple reasons and advantages for doing it. So it's not like they won't make their money back from those things. And it's still sparring in the day. Like, even if it does get dropped from the calendar, I wonder if something like Formula E would make an exception to their city rule because it's Spa. They already go to the same track as the Formula 1 for Mexico. Okay, it's Mexico City, so it still counts. But, you know, if you were ever going to make an exception, have a Formula E car on Spa and go, yeah, look what we got because F1 were too stupid to know what they had. The track's so long, you'd have about 15 minutes of a Formula E race. I'd still take it. <laughs> I would love to see an FE car try and do sort of radial uh, rouge come out of La Source because they'd be relying on the momentum they get coming out of La Source because I don't know if a Formula E car's quite got the grunt to do that. There's, there's a way to prove themselves as they've stepped up for the Gen 3 cars. Go they got to do it. And again, like you said, you've got bikes going around there. You've got um, and you've got your G- GT racing. You've got your WEC series. You've got classics also. You have your 24-hour and 6-hour spa. You have a huge amount of racing that goes on at the circuit. It's not like they've done this to impress Formula 1. They've almost done this in a way of saying, we've done this because this also applies to other racing series. If you decide to go away, you're lost, my friend. They're not going to be jealous about it. Um, not really an easy segue into the next point. Uh, Liam Lawson, P19 and FP1 for Alpha Tauri. Not terrible, especially as it's a pretty cruddy car and he had a better time in F2. Again, like I said, we'll touch on his F2 stuff, but his F1, not shabby, really, for an FP1 drive. What amused me most about this was that the other driver to get in a Red Bull car this year in a practice session was down the bottom of the timesheet and then proceeded to have a terrible Formula 2 weekend in Austria, and that was in the Red Bull. <laughs> Liam Lawton comes in and out for Tauri, does pretty much the same kind of thing, and then goes on to have an absolutely stonking F2 weekend, just kind of showing exactly what he needed to do to the right people at the right time on one of the fifth and um, best tracks in the world. So, for a Stamford, bloody Alphatari's permanently. He couldn't do much else there, really. Yeah, he put in a good show, and again, he hadn't driven the car much. This is his first time getting used to a circuit where you have to be on it all the time. There is not an inch of room at Spa to go wrong, and the Alphatari is not its best this year. It's a really a sort of a pretty bottom tier car this year, so getting something out of it on your first go is pretty good indeed, to be fair. So, kudos to the boy and he did well with limited running because he wasn't really allowed out in the rain which why would you be because this is your first first time in an f1 car at belgium yeah yeah (laughs) so he did well despite the limited running yeah so again Round of applause for Liam Lawson there. And uh, at that point, we will move on to our winners and spinners, as he is in some way a bit of a winner for having that fairly heroic performance. Uh, Timo, I'll let you start with your winner. Yeah, I mean, on the one hand, this year, the Spa Grand Prix was better than 2021, so win. On the downside, eh, not much else really happened. Um, But despite that, I do have two winners, which I know are cheesy, but there we go. George Russell, again, top five finish, overtook a Ferrari in Charles Leclerc, championship contender Charles Leclerc, and made it look like 
an absolute just piece of well, you know, and could have had Carlos signs as well. I mean, it was it was Russell's mistake that saved Carlos, not Carlos's actual driving and the Ferrari car itself. A couple more laps, and he might have been able to to get him on there. Um, and if they'd given Carlos Charles's strategy, he would have had him. Um, so again, the boy is on fire, and if he, we've seen what he can do in the Williams, which isn't great. We've seen what he can do in the Mercedes, isn't great. I cannot wait to see what he can do in a really good car. It's going to be scary. I think we think Max is good now. I think George is going to be big trouble for him. Um, but talking to Max, he is also the like, winner because fourteenth to first and just yeah, seventeen lap, seventeen, seventeen laps. That'd be quite a lead. Um, seventeen seconds ahead of Perez by the end of the race. Says it all, really. You know, I don't really need to say much else on that one. It's yeah, the championship is his. It's just a matter of when, not when, where. Where, um, yeah, it's so. how soon is it going to be? I think that's the thing with Max. It's a case of he did in lap one what would take some drivers a whole Charles. race to do. Yeah, he it he was what P fourteen to P eight or something. Yeah, in, in, in one lap. Yeah, it was kind of one lap. reminiscent of one of the feeder series races where you had people starting towards the back and they made up fifteen places in like three laps. Yeah. Like, oh, okay. You've been watching that. You thought, oh, that'll be fun. I'll do that. And so that'll be that'll be good fun. And it, now that he's had the, the new components of the car, barring any big shunts where they need to replace anything, that's him done for the year. He doesn't need to have anything either. So he is just going to be on an absolute trip now. And yeah, Japan, I'd say he'll wrap it up there, just because that would be a good place for it. Good a place I, as any. Just for I the sake of we haven't had it in... We've had it in America and Mexico too many times recently, so Japan used to be a series finale, so we'll have it there. I wouldn't be surprised if we even see it in Singapore, to be fair. Yeah. That wouldn't come Again, it's a matter of where. It's a matter of where. If he, again, he's going to ultimately walk away with 25 points from Zandvoort, it's unlikely he's not going to walk away with some decent points at Monza, although he does have a bit of a curse to break there. And then after that, it's Singapore. And again, I can't see him not coming away from that with 25 points. That's the only reason I say Japan, just because Monza has been crazy the last three years, so I don't automatically give that one to him. Yeah, I'm thinking potentially this year we might even see, I don't want to say a dull Monza because I'm going and I don't want to see a dull race, but uh, I wouldn't be surprised if we see a Verstappen win there, which will suck because I'll have a Ferrari cap on and I'll be surrounded by Italians and all want to be celebrating a Ferrari win, but it, it just is performance this season. It'll give you a new excuse to use your pass to go on. Yeah, but... it's just any... His performances this season have been otherworldly, and we look back at like the dominant periods of Michael Schumacher or the hyper dominance of Lewis Hamilton, and when you've got a driver that's starting from the tail end of the field and is coming through to win with such a huge margin, imagine if he started at the front of the grid, how big that margin would be. And I've never seen someone do it so calmly as well. Without really breaking a sweat, that's the thing. He, mm. It is a second nature to him at this point. The, the statistic I've got, which right, it's one of two drivers here, and I'm pretty sure it, yeah, it's definitely one of these two drivers. So I, I just can't remember which one. But the last time someone won back-to-back races from from like such a way down the grid, it was either and either one is the of it was either Jack Brabham or Bruce McLaren. Yeah, which, you have to go back to fifty six to Bruce McLaren, I think. Yes, I think it was Bruce McLaren. Mm. Yeah. 
Definitely one of the two. And again, you're going back a long way to the point where you the sixties so crazy and chaotic, where <laughs> anything would happen in any race. And yeah, I think it's is no longer a strange statement to mention Max Verstappen when he's putting in these sort of untouchable drives in the same breath that you'd mentioned Michael Schumacher or you'd mentioned Lewis Hamilton because it is a drive worthy of that sort of accolade because he was untouchable. No one could get close to him this mm. weekend. Which is all the more reason why I want to see them give George a car that he can actually do something with because clearly Ferrari aren't going to do anything about him so they could have all the perfect greens but they would still mess it up. So we need Mercedes back up there or Alpine or both, ideally, to come and do this because otherwise these whole new regulations will have fallen on their ass big time because you'll just get more domination of a different kind and you've just got one driver for another and not really achieved anything. He did have a p- new power unit though, so it was easy for him to. Not you still, easy you've still got to do, do the but... job though. You've still got yes. to do the job, and yeah, if you look at the opening stint, regardless of sort of how much he did in t- lap one versus how much Charles Leclerc did in lap one with also a fresh power unit, you've really got to start sort of questioning because everyone's like, oh, Charles Leclerc future is going to be a future world champion. Like, n- not if Max Verstappen is still on the grid because starting to think that potentially Charles can't take the torch to Max as much. George might be able to when we get him with a good car, and I've no doubt in that, but. Before I ask you who your winner was, Jesse, I'm going to make a poll prediction, which I really, really hope I'm proven wrong on. Um, Charles Leclerc's not going to win a world championship in Ferrari. Not with the way that it's currently going. I don't think that's... With Ferrari, it's not going to... And the other team, maybe, but with Ferrari... Yeah. But that's not Ferrari. fully down to Leclerc. It's not down to no, Leclerc. But at the same it. time, he's still got to make the best out of it. It might not be entirely his fault, but that doesn't mean it's going to happen. He's going to have to Nigel Mansell it and sort of do a lot of work at Ferrari then go to a different team and absolutely dominate sort of thing. Yeah, Williams. But could you say that you look at how many points Max has got, he can kind of take... I mean, he won't want to take risks, but he can kind of take more risks in the opening lap. Leclerc can't. He cannot afford to lose any more points than he already has this year. So he's got to be You're implying safer that he's still in his driving. Championship this year, which he absolutely <laughs> doesn't. He doesn't. He's lost no. second place to Perez. Yeah, and George I think is he's just got. He's, he's not that far off. Him. Fifteen points Wait, or something. Carlos might. Carlos does. Well, yeah, Car- yeah, Carlos has just overtaken George in the constructors. One, one point. But, yeah. Point's the point. But, anyway, it's, yeah. Yes, Jesse, Jesse, your winner, winner for... before I bring everyone down before... too much with my morbidity and accuracy. Before we all keep going on this sort of spiralling of Ferrari hatred. Um, yeah, so, obviously, you've already mentioned Max Verstappen. For me, I definitely want to give Perez my winner's accolade for this weekend because... He looked to be on a bit of a slump at the tail end of last season, but he's come back into the after the summer break looking a bit more revitalised. His his quality performance was pretty strong. He was sort of up there at the front end of the grid again, and he put on a good show again, playing exactly the role that Red Bull brought him in to do. It wasn't necessarily a stellar performance, not a world championship drive, but he's doing exactly what he needs to do, and he's... Yeah, can't can't fault him for what he did. Equally, I gotta say kudos to George Russell again, as we've already mentioned, keeping a Mercedes in the top five when it really didn't belong there. 
Um, and equally, my, my, my real winner has to be Alex Alvin, actually, for outperforming that Williams once again and spending the final third of the race defending like a lion. There was no way past that car. He reposted Admit- one Admittedly, of it was Lance Stroll behind him, but still, he had to do the job. <laughs> It was Stroll behind him, but equally he's now Albon getting that point now puts Albon ahead of Stroll in the driver standings as well. And again, it just goes to show there's there's fights up and down the grid, but that way and yeah, he's performing something incredible in that Williams that is sort of untenable for other drivers potentially. Perez wise, I'm curious to see what happens with him next year because he's essentially been Max Hill's perfect right hand man for two years in a row now, and at the rate that's going, he'll get P2 in the Drivers' Championship. Max owes him big time. I know that's not necessarily how it works on, in reality, but Perez is thinking, there's, I've got a championship-winning car here. There's no reason why I shouldn't go for the championship in 23, and I've got two years of goodwill with Red Bull. If I phrase it right to Helmut, Christian, and Matt, can I go and win a championship? Can I make it so that someone other than better than Max can actually do something in the second seat and then I'll retire and I'll leave you alone I just will be like this and I don't see why they shouldn't to be honest because we'd all just love to see that and yeah Albon might not like to see that because it wouldn't do that for me but then again he's going to be a world champion William so it's all good yeah, I mean, if Perez literally went to them and said, 2023, can I win the championship? And then I will do everything in my power to give Max the biggest gap to win 2024. Like, how... Just... I reckon it's it's doable. He, he could definitely go in there with a contract and say, look, I want properly equal footing for one we'll take a pay just so I can see. <laughs> I'll take a pay cut. I'll do properly equal footing if we get to, say, again, the, the season's always waited. There's more in the first half. If he says... If we get to after the summer break and I've not got it, I will hand over the reins to Max. But if he, for the first half of the season, can take it to Max and can literally lead a world championship, I don't see why he couldn't win it. And again, he's got the car. He's proven that he can drive that car really well. Look back to the tail end of 2021, that drive he gave in Abu Dhabi Mm -hmm. against Lewis Hamilton on dead tyres was Mm -hmm. astronomical, really. You're thinking there is no way he's holding Lewis Hamilton on fresh tyres up. And you watch him coming out of turn five and you're thinking, no, Lewis is gone, Lewis is gone. And then you just see this almighty send from Perez and you're thinking, there is something in this driver that you, if Red Bull are clever enough, they can utilise beyond him being a second driver. I think that's... If if we do, we're in for something truly special. I think Red Bull could learn a lot from watching how... I'm banking a lot on 2023, I admit. Yeah, they can definitely learn a lot from how Rosberg and Hamilton fell apart and say, okay, if we manage the expectations of both drivers and make them appreciate what what each other is going for, by that point, Max will have two world championships under his belt and almost certainly a third one whenever they if they let Perez have one. It's unlikely they're going to do something like that, but it'd be nice. Anyway, I've talked enough. Ellie Mae, your winner. My winner is Esteban Ocon, 16th to 7, with two of the most beautiful overtakes, double overtakes, that we've had this season. Yeah, I mean, the first was on Daniel Ricciardo and Nicholas Latifi at the bus stop chicane, and he had to have a lot of faith in the other two, not going straight into him. And he managed to leave enough space as well to get 
for everyone to get round. He did it very fairly. And then the second was on Bessel and Gasly up the Kemmel Street for seventh position. A bit like kind of that Hacken and Schumacher, but not quite as intense. Nice <laughs> yes. Yeah. It was a, a neat nod to it. And again, it was weird that Formula One had only previous, like the day before the race, retweeted the clip of that Hacken and Schumacher double overtake. And then Espen Ockham does it in the race, comes out of the race and immediately goes and finds the tweet and just hits retweet. And I'm like, my boy knows what he's done. It was an absolute boss of an overtake. And the one coming through the bus stop chicane, while not as necessarily sort of iconic visually, the fact that he could do that and he had the sort of race awareness to make sure there was space for three cars to go through a tight chicane. And again, obviously, he knows how to race wheel-to-wheel against Daniel Ricciardo from their time at Alpine. But again, throwing into the mix Latifi, who's a pretty much an unknown quantity... And a kudos to Latifi as well, though, for having enough racecraft to, to not uh, Latifi not it like he did in turn one uh, at uh, Lacombe Chicane. Yeah, yeah. Basically, he did Latifi it like he did at Lacombe and ruined Bottas's birthday, which uh, leads me into my spinner actually, which was Bottas because yeah, what a terrible way to spend your birthday. I did use something else there, but I can't be bothered to find the beep noise yet. So uh, talking to Ferrari, they're my spinner. And now I've got to go find the beep noise. Or you could leave it in because I'm sure people of all the episodes will not complain about it here. But but none of the other ones have the E for explicit on them. Now I've got to change it. <laughs> One episode, just intense anyway. swearing because of Ferrari. Yeah, they they fudged it up big time. And in so many different ways that it's just beyond comprehension. And it's, it's, I was talking with many, many people about it yesterday all of whom were just very different degrees of depressed. And it would be funny if it wasn't so depressing. It's not once or twice. It's it's like seeing your friend when they're drunk a couple of times and it's amusing to see what they're up to. But when it's over a course of a long few months and it's consistent, you think, maybe we need an intervention for them and they need, they need some help. But they just seem adamant that they're doing nothing wrong. And what on earth was that strategy with Charles at the end? Why, you know what? You're already asking him about strategy before then anyway, which you shouldn't be doing because you should already have codes for that anyway and have that all set out, determined on various different scenarios that could be unfolding, like any competent F1 team. Um, Rich Energy would probably have more sense for strategy than they do at the moment, for Christ's sake. And, yeah, it's just... I'm being incoherent and a bit rampant because I'm just still by it all, to be honest, and just think, how did they go from where they were in Bahrain and Saudi to this? It is just ridiculous, and as you say in the notes that he made, what did Leclerc do in a past life to deserve this kind of abuse? Yeah, um, he's one of two spinners that I've got. I mean, for Leclerc, you take an engine penalty... So does your rival. Your rival wins. You end up in sixth. I know he got a visor strip. And you could have had fifth. Yeah, and you could have had fifth. I know he got a visor strip stuck in his brake duct at, right at the start. But I even think if that happened to Max, Max still would have gone off and won it. So I don't really think you can use that as an excuse. That strategy at the end, did they not learn from Imola? Where they lost 10 points. I'm going to stop you right there anyway. No, the <laughs> end of story. They lost 10 points when attempting fastest lap. 
that clearly wasn't enough punishment. They were like, you know what? We're going to pit you and attempt fastest slap. But by the way, Fernando Alonso is about 18, 19 seconds behind you. So you're probably not going to make it out before him. He's going to overtake you. You're then for the past, the then next two laps, you're then going to have to fight him to then overtake him and try and get your fastest lap. It's just... Oh, and also you have only the two left because at the end of the second lap, the race is finished and we can't do it better. Yeah. Why? Genius. It's... It's so out-the-box thinking that you can't even see the box in it. And that is a concern. Yeah. Stunned silence here is, is very much the mood of everyone in it. it. Usually it's like this sort of, I'm not angry, just disappointed. I'm no longer disappointed. It's exactly what I expected. And I think that's, that is the crux of the problem with Ferrari, is we no longer expect them to do anything good. We celebrate when they do because it's now a rare occasion, and I think that's the problem. They came to this season looking like a dominant force. I mean, if Carlos's face on the podium said it all, really. Yeah, there was more to what could have been his race there, and despite coming home third again, out driving his teammate, eh, just sort of seemed a bit lost and a bit sort of let down by everything. I don't think Signs could have done any more in that race. I think Red Bull were the better team, but. Yeah, it's at this point. I think Gordon Ramsay's been visiting the wrong team, and needs to get into Ferrari and sort them out. Give them a good swearing at. Yeah. It's it's just upsetting. Anyway, we'll move into our next little segment, which is constructors countdown. Which this week actually comes with a bonus round. We're adding in a driver's countdown because I like a challenge and trying to fit twenty-one drivers with a description of their position in the standings into thirty seconds is probably a challenge. In P10, but scraping a sole point Williams, P9 is occupied by Aston Martin, lining up to take the fight to AlphaTauri in the second half of the season with just five points between them now. P7 is home to Haas, a further five points up the road. P6 belongs to Alfa Romeo, who are in a bit of a no-man's land. In P5, McLaren can only see Alpine pulling away from them, the French outfit extending their lead from four to 20 points. 201 points ahead of the French is Mercedes, opening up a gap of 41 to the Germans is Ferrari in P2, and still leading now with a practically unassailable 475 points, it's Red Bull. Hulkenberg still tails the championship while the TP is still in P20. Tied on points but with better finishes, Albon passes Stroll for 18th. Joe, Sonoda and Schumacher occupy 17th, 16th and 15th. Gasly drops 1 to 14th, as does Ricciardo now in 13th. Both passed by Vettel now in P12. K-Mag holds on to number 11 while Alonso overtakes Bottas for P9. Ocon, Norris and Hamilton hold on to 8, 7 and 6. Signs and Russell trade places for the third race in a row, the Spaniard now leading the Brit. Perez passes Charles for P2 and Max extends his P1 lead to nearly 100 points. So Max Verstappen does now lead the championship with a gap of nearly 100 points, but when it comes to gaps, points and leading a championship, it's time to look at our predictions, which this weekend have actually been anything but boring and quite interesting, actually. He says flicking across to try and find the window where all the predictions are. Here we go, this Google Sheets document. We've taken up to decide that we're going to have a much more interesting championship overall, I think, than at once. We'll sacrifice some of our own personal glory and, and do more of an effort and keep the nothing close. That's, that's clearly been the plan. Yeah, that seems to generally be the plan. And boy, oh boy, did we have an interesting weekend. Everyone scored points, which is the first time 
that's happened since France, which d- seems quite a long time ago. But every, <laughs> that was every, not as impressive as you wanted that to be. No, it really wasn't, because I, I hadn't thought that one through, so I was sort of ad-libbing that one and thought, oh, this would be amazing. No, not everyone scored points since France. If it weren't for France, the last time everyone scored points... Uh, oh, France was the first time everyone scored points. But I, th- <laughs> I think it... <laughs> That, that sounds a bit better now. You've saved it. I think it's surprising that it's this race, considering our predictions were mainly Leclerc and Verstappen, and they're both starting at the back of the grid. Yeah, weirdly enough, we obviously, again, we made our predictions quite early on, and then obviously we had the news that all the grid drops are coming in, and we're like, oh, that's mucked things up royally. But because, obviously, Max Verstappen was awarded the pole award for it, he got the little tyre that was handed to him by Jackie X, and he put his signature on it, and yada yada yada, that counts as his pole. Ergo, we have awarded points in our predictions, for those of you that follow this part of the series, for Max Verstappen pole, which is good news for Timo and Guest, which uh, was Fraser Ford uh, from the Inside F2 podcast, isn't he? Yeah. So, uh, yes, points awarded there for Leclerc for Verstappen polls. Um, I'll run through where I got my points. So, uh, well, actually, we'll, we'll go in ascending order. Timo got one point this week, which was for his Verstappen poll. So uh, he did not get his, a point for a Leclerc win, a Verstappen second, a Hamilton third, or a Sainz fastest lap. And he did not get seven retirements, which was terrible optimistic. But it looked like we could have done I one point. I expected Spa to be Spa. It wasn't quite as sparse as we thought. Uh, so he's in fourth. Tied on second place is Ellie May and myself. Both <laughs> can't with... be fourth and then there's tied second place. You have third and then tied second. Don't be a dick. No, you're fourth and then obviously second and third are tied. So we're on second and then there's first. The way you You'd think there's some sort of rivalry on this. Um, Ellie May and I, like I said, tied for second place with two points apiece. Uh, Ellie May got her points for predicting Scarlet Sainz third place and for her wild prediction, her madcap prediction of William's top ten, which came true. <laughs> so, points there. Uh, I also got my madcap prediction, which was Mercedes outside the top eight, which, I mean, yeah, Lewis Hamilton did finish outside the top eight. He finished outside the first lap as well, but I need to tighten you up on specific I was I gave you Max Verstappen pole despite the fact he did not start P one on Sunday. No, but that. Do you want me to take that away from you? Do you want me to take that away from you? you Do you want me to take away your points? No. Okay, there we go. Right. No, I'm I'm muting your audio line on the edit. Uh, I also got a point for Max Verstappen fastest lap, which uh, there we go. So I got two points. And uh, Fraser did the best of a lot of us. He wins with three points for pole position, Verstappen, a win, Verstappen, and his third place prediction of Carlos Sainz. Weirdly enough, though, he did predict that the person who had come home in sixth place would have fastest lap, which damn near came true for Charles Leclerc, who came home sixth but didn't quite get his fastest lap. So it was Fraser's fault, basically. I don't know if we can blame Fraser for that or just be astonished he predicted that much craziness happening that the guy in sixth would attempt to fastest lap because he did say that the person in sixth would pit because they'd have a gap to seventh and go for it. But for so some he reason, he went slightly the wrong way because it was fifth. Yeah. Fit, but again, it, it's close enough for a, for a very random prediction and like the one better thought. Props to him for screwing Ferrari. Yeah. 
props to him for it. It didn't earn him a point, but it still earns him one more point than Ellie Mayer and I scored. The net result of all this is uh, there is now a double tie on the grid for points. Ellie Mayer and I are tied for first place at 13 apiece. And in technically third, Timo and the guest are tied. Uh, which sees them on 11 points, both two points behind Ellie May and myself. Although, uh, to split it, the guest is currently on a higher average than Timo, so the guest leads Timo and Ellie May currently leads me because she also has a higher average across the races because we're fair on this podcast and we don't count it for weekends. There aren't people here. And, of course, Ellie May wasn't here for some of the beginning of the season, so she's on an average of 0.722 points per race. Timo, you have the really nice. You score about half a point every race, actually. You're on 0.500, so congratulations. I'm a traditionalist like this. I like half. You only work with round numbers. Uh, speaking of, again, completely pointless numbers, we'll move on to our Fantasy F1 review, which I completely forgot about, so then sort of checked this afternoon <coughs> to see how it had done because I hadn't really looked at it over the summer season and uh, didn't do brilliantly, if I'm honest. I did better than be Timo. I'd to know I rejigged my entire F1 team and it didn't work. Did you do? Did you do some rejigging? It didn't show. I, I fired everybody and then rehired. I got Max in and it still didn't help. <laughs> uh, yeah, so winner this week with one hundred and ninety six points. Alan G. Uh, a close second goes to a, a friend of mine from my master's degree, Dan, with his Ferrari team. Not entirely certain how he did that. I didn't check what was on his team, but it paid off for him. Uh, we'll name drop friend of the show Megan Maurer in third two uh, from this week and her break check team. Uh, I didn't have a brilliant weekend, P8 and P13, but Timo, as usual, had a worse one, P17 and P20 for all his efforts. Overall, Alex H still leads with Tejas in P2, uh, but I now have P3 and P4 in the standings, which means I think I've passed another friend of the show, Lottie Talks Cars. So, looking good for me overall in the standings, I'll say that much. Why do you have two? I put two into the league. Timo has two in the league as well. You can end, we yeah, said but you one can of us is the podcast, to be fair. You could probably just take it over at this point. I'm perfectly content with my two, P3 and P4. I mean, I'm clearly <laughs> doing about... really well with the podcast team. You're clearly doing so well with your own one, you could take over the other one and sort of probably not do any worse. I could probably start a third one at this point and overtake myself by the end of the season if I played it like you could do. I mean, I have three teams in it as well. Like, but um, the third, you can only enter two teams into our league. So there you go. But anyway, that that concludes our fantasy F one review, and by and large, concludes our review of the Belgian Grand Prix, as chaotic as it is, and at nearly an hour long. Um, that's all we've got time for, really. So keep your eyes peeled for our Formula Two and Formula Three review episode as well as our Dutch Grand Prix preview, which will both be out. Uh, no, the F2 and F3 review episode won't be out later this week. The F2 and F3... Well, you wrote this part of the script. Don't shake your head at me. <laughs> you were meant to edit that. How was I to know that oh, I should have just assumed you are going to do a slapdash job? Um, yes, our F2 and F3 reviews will be coming out after the triple header as we've sort of prioritised F1 because there's not really room in my schedule for editing F2, F3 and going to Monza. So uh, that'll all be out after Monza if you want feeder series stuff. But in the meantime, we will have a preview of the Dutch Grand Prix later this week. If you want more of me, you can find me on Instagram and Twitter. There'll be a huge dump of photographs from the Silverstone Classic coming to it. So if you like old cars, spitting flames and classic Formula One cars, that's where you want to go and look. Timo, where can we find you? You can find me on the curbs where I'm interviewing various motorsport people every Friday, so that's all been fun. And I've got a new article out on Open Forum, Is It Fast? And of course, Instagram, Adam Priority, where you can find me here. 
can't get enough of them in the meantime. You're only keeping me. And Alibay, where can the people find you? You can find me on our Instagram page doing my key takeaways or the TikTok account, which hopefully Jesse will send me something to do with Silverstone Classic. I'll go and edit it all into a cute little video. I might even do the editing bit for you. I might just send you the, the clip ready for you to mm. put on TikTok. I might even be that nice. I don't know. Depends how much time I've got this weekend, weekend which I don't think is a lot. I'm happy to edit, we'll see. to be honest. I'm glad we can get this admin sorted out. <laughs> there we go. That neatly wraps up our review of the Belgian Grand Prix. Thank you very much for listening and join us later this week for our preview of the Dutch Grand Prix. What an idiot closing the door from the outside. We had a mega start, but yeah, this guy only knows how to drive and start in first.